Hey, this is Brian Jansson here with the Mid-City Vineyard Church weekly podcast and teaching. If you would like to learn a little bit more about Mid-City Vineyard, check us out online, midcityvineyard.org. You can find us on Facebook, Mid-City Vineyard Church, and on Instagram, at Mid-City Vineyard. Also recently, some have been asking, hey, how can we uh, support the work that Mid-City Vineyard is uh, working for and doing in the Mid-City community there in New Orleans? And if you would like to donate uh, to Mid-City Vineyard Church, it's really simple. You can actually text the letters MCV to 77977. It walks you through a very simple uh, app and way of giving, and all donations are uh, tax-deductible, and we greatly appreciate uh, any donations that you would like to make. For the last number of weeks, we've been in a series entitled... I've always wondered where we've been answering questions, uh, primarily questions that our church asks about the faith that they've always had. This past weekend, the question was about the end times. Uh, there was a little bit of uh, question, there were kind of some questions about Israel, the temple in Jerusalem, the Jews, and some of the really other bizarre prophecies that seem to be being made in uh, the New Testament and Old Testament scriptures. So we look at that in our conversation today. So we're going to head on over to the conversation. Hope you enjoy. Much peace to you. All right, for the last number of weeks, we've been in this series called I've Always Wondered. I've loved this series. Last week, we actually had an additional meeting called Questions About the Answers, which was phenomenal. We had wonderful conversation. We've tackled some super difficult and challenging questions over the last couple of weeks. And today uh, is no different. We continue uh, with these questions. And today's question comes from someone in our church who said, recently someone mentioned to me that the end is near. And then they said the third temple is currently being built in Jerusalem, and that means it won't be long before the return of Christ. Can you answer these questions? And so I started working on this this weekend only to realize that I don't know anything about the end times. I I just, I I don't care about the end times. I don't know about the end times. I don't think the end times are a big deal. And that's that's me. That's how I I am and how I think. And so then I thought, well, now I need to, if I'm going to halfway adequately approach this, I've got to try to study it a little bit. and, And that's... It's been really, really challenging for me, but I'm going to give this my best response, my best shot at a response. But it, it my uh, this part was kind of fascinating because this question was asked weeks ago, probably ten weeks ago. They put the question out. Well, about six weeks ago, I was in Dayton, Ohio, for a pastors conference. I went there for a a vineyard, uh, a national vineyard pastors conference. So there was there were probably about couple thousand people at this conference and I was with a buddy of mine that pastors at another vineyard church and we we uh, ordered an uber and this guy picks us up and we jump in his uber and he says oh I see you guys are headed to a, a church and we said yeah we're we're, we're from uh, New Orleans we're pastors and we're going to this this conference that's just this church and he says well my name is Jeff and it's not often I get to carry Christians around in my car <laughs> and I just went oh it's like, this is not. He says, but you guys are pastors, so, so you should know. He says, i got to ask you. He says, are you pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib? Now, if you don't know, he's talking about the book of Revelation, and he wants to know if we believe that 
um, Christians are going to be sucked out of the earth before the tribulation, uh, or if Christians are going to be sucked out of earth in the middle of the tribulation, or if Christians are going to be sucked out of the earth after the tribulation. And that was that's his context. That's that's his way of operating. And I was sitting in the back seat. My buddy was sitting in the front seat. And my buddy says, oh, yeah, that's a good question, Uber Jeff. Because this guy, this guy kept calling us brother. It was brother Ethan and brother Brian. He's like, well, brother Ethan, what do you think? And so we started calling him Uber Jeff. And, and uh, brother Ethan looks at Uber Jeff and he says, Uber Jeff, that's such a great question. And I think that's a question for brother Brian. <laughs> and I, I about went through the roof. And I said, well, you know, Uber Jeff, um, I actually, I actually, I, I don't believe in the rapture. I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like a, a, a no-trib, if you want to go that direction. And Uber Jeff almost wrecked his car. And he's like, well, what are you talking about, Brother Brian? He says, it, it's clear, it is as clear as day in the book of Daniel that there is stuff happening. He goes, you know, in the book of Daniel when they talk about Magog, the, the, the city of Magog? And I was like, not really. And he says, well, that is modern-day Iraq. And he says, and such and such is modern-day Afghanistan, and such and such, that's Donald Trump. And all of these things are happening right now in our time, Brother Brian, and you should probably get to knowing where you stand on the tribulation. And I said, well, Uber Jeff, with all due respect, I said, the truth is, you and I, we, we read the Bible really, really differently. Like, we're reading the same book, but we're not reading the same book kind of a thing. And so Uber Jeff was like, well, what else do you guys want to talk about then? <laughs> Which was really, really a nice break. So do you guys remember the first part of this series when we talked about how to read the scripture? You know, and I, I, was, I was explaining to you that there are different ways of reading the scripture. Uber Jeff falls uh, in one particular vein of how to read the scripture. Uh, and I fall completely on the other side of Uber Jeff. Now, I kind of understand a little bit of what Uber Jeff is talking about, but I do want to talk about it a little bit more today because I think that there is a, I personally believe there's a healthier way of understanding the scriptures. When I, when I got the question about the end times, it was fascinating because it's an interesting topic where there are apocalyptic preachers, apocalypse, talking about end times kind of things and, and, and how the world's going to end. There are all these apocalyptic kind of preachers and scriptures and teachings, and they interpret these things uh, over and over and over again, time and time again, about, and they proclaim that the end is near. And, and you might have been engaged in some of that before. You know, when I was a kid, I remember when I was in the fifth grade, my dad was reading the Times-Picayune. We were sitting at the breakfast table. Uh, I think it was in fourth or fifth grade. My dad has the, the old school newspaper. He's reading through the Times-Picayune. He opens it up, and I remember it very well. There was a full-page ad uh, that said, the, the end is here, the world will end, and it gave a specific date. It was like two months away. But somebody had taken out an ad in the paper to declare that the world was going to end on a specific day. And I remember uh, my dad just kind of saying, hey, look at this, Brian, the world's going to end. And I'm like, oh, yeah, fourth grade, what does that mean? And my dad said, oh, don't worry about it, it doesn't mean anything. Somebody's just trying to scare people into heaven. And so I thought, oh, that's, a, that's, a, that's legitimate. Um, there was this guy named Harold Camping. Do you guys recognize that name? This, this super, super old dude who, back in 2011, he predicted the world is going to end on May 21st. The world is going to end on May 21st. On May 22nd, Harold Camping came out and he said, I miscalculated. <laughs> the world is going to end on October 21st. I was off by a couple months. It's October the 21st. On October the 22nd, uh, he was completely irrelevant and has been ever since because it's just kind of, 
So you have these, these folks who are trying to guess the end of the world through, by using the scripture. And then you have the words of Jesus in the book of Matthew when Jesus says, and I quote, The day and the hour no one knows. The angels don't know. I don't know. Only God the Father knows. So I know I often say things to you like, hey, look, very rarely when someone says, clearly it says in scripture, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, be very, be very weary of that. You know, when people say clearly it says in scripture, because I don't think very many things are clear in scripture. This one I find kind of funny, though, because I, I do, I find myself leaning, going against my own advice. It feels like Jesus is like, hey, look, the angels don't know. I don't know. Only God knows. So maybe don't worry about it. That's what I think Jesus is saying, but maybe we could look at it a little bit more. All right, there's a thing called eschatology. This is the theological term for the study of last things. Okay, so there are uh, professors and researchers, and there are men and women with PhDs and master's degrees and scholars, and they study this thing called eschatology. They study things that have to do with the end times or the study of last things. That's important as we look through this. There, in addition to that, there are basically three books in the Bible, the book of Daniel, the book of Ezekiel, and the book of Revelation, that people take a lot of their end-time prophecy or end-time fortune-telling from. They'll use the book of Daniel, the book of Ezekiel, the book of Revelation to say, well, the scripture says this, this, and this, and I think it means this, this, or this. I'm going to throw a couple of terms at you. I'm going to keep it fairly simple, but I will throw the terms at you so that we can be on the same page of understanding there are different views. Because I've done that with everything else that we've talked about, the different views. When it comes to figuring out how to read the scripture, and when it comes to biblical prophecy, the book of Daniel, the book of Revelation primarily, uh, there are different angles, different ways of approaching it. The first one is the preterist view, preterism or the preterist view. And this view actually interprets most or all of the prophecies of the Bible as events that have already happened. Preterists see the events of the Bible as things that have already taken place. And the school of thought would say things like this. The book of Daniel was referring to events that were going to happen in the, around the 7th century B.C. all the way up until around 70 AD. So in the book of Daniel, when the prophecies are given, these are things that had already happened and they were using symbolism to explain it or they were things that more than likely were going to be unfolding in the next couple of years. While they also see the prophecies of Revelation as events that probably already happened or were going to be happening in that time frame. This is what we would call the preterist view. The preterist see, and this is where it's going to get really interesting and I'm not going to dive too deep into this. We have our end-time prophecies, Daniel, Revelation, but then we also have some ambiguous scriptures about what is God going to do with Israel. What's he going to do with the land, and what's he going to do with the Jewish people? These are two huge, enormous, broad subjects. We're glossing over them today. I'll put resources in tomorrow's newsletter if you want to really read more about it. But preterist would say that Israel had their moment as being the people of God, representing God to all of creation, and that at, at the turn of this, uh, or at the turn of, well, when Christ came, that God basically took Israel's call to represent him, turned that call over to the church, you and I, and Israel's call ended and the church picked it up, and now the church is who is called to represent Christ to the world. Okay, so that would be a preterist view. The second view is historicism, or the historical view, 
and it's a method of interpreting biblical prophecies. Uh, it associates the symbols and the historical persons uh, with nations or persons and events. And so the historicists are the ones who kind of say, hey, look, we can take the biblical prophecies, and if we look close enough, we can find America in, in the biblical prophecies. If we look close enough, we can find Hitler in the biblical prophecies. If we look close enough and if we pull enough strings and if we make enough things dance, we can find Donald Trump in the prophecies. We can find Barack Obama in the prophecies. You know, and, and so those are, that's a historicist kind of view. Well, well, let me just say, those people exist. There are people who read the scriptures like that. Um, actually, lots of the uh, reformers uh, saw, in the Protestants, saw the scripture like that in the 19th century, uh, trying to make the pieces fit ultimately. So that's another view. We'll come back to all these. There's the futuristic view, or the futurism, which uh, they, they draw these parallels between the historical events and mostly the prophecies and the events that haven't yet been fulfilled, but will take place in an age to come. So there's this idea that none of it's happened yet. There's a futurist event. It's off in the future. It'll all happen right there at the moment at the end when Jesus comes back. And so all of these symbols and all these things will match some futuristic approach. And then there is the idealistic approach, which is everything in idealism, everything is symbolic. Everything is symbolic. None of it is real. It's just gleaned from the symbolism what you can glean from it. Uh, it's this idea that ultimately learn as much as you can from it, but make sure you're continuing to make the world a better place because that's what these stories are trying to tell us. This is how we kind of came about uh, understanding having a social gospel, which is very, very heavy on social justice, but leaves a lot of other stuff behind when it comes to Christ and the cross and things like that. The futurist model, or I'm sorry, the idealist model, which was birthed by primarily uh, theologian Karl Barth and some others, kind of plays into this idea that the only thing that's literal is probably the return of Jesus. Now, there are all these different ways of interpreting it and seeing it, and here's the bottom line. Just like everything else we talk about, more than likely, you have gotten your understanding of end times from books and movies and comments made along the way. For instance, the, there's an author by the name of Tim LaHaye. He and uh, a guy named Jenkins wrote a series of books called Left Behind. You might have read the Left Behind books. They were very, very, very popular. But they took certain passages of scripture. I mean, those, those books are, are, are fiction. But they took certain pa pa passages of scripture about rapture and some stuff out of Revelation and Thessalonians. And they, they took them to this the nth degree. And these guys were futurists how they understood the end times. And lots of people have gotten their end time theology from this set of fictional writings. Then they made movies of these books, really, really bad movies. <laughs> and the reason you know they're bad is because the actors they chose. They chose Kirk Cameron for the first go round, and almost equally as bad, they chose Nicolas Cage the second time around. It was just, just brutal movies uh, called Left Behind. Uh, and you know, the premise is, People are flying in airplanes, and Jesus comes back, and the rapture happens, and people are sucked. Like, this person gets sucked out of the plane, the pilot gets sucked out, and all, these people don't, and then the plane crashes, and these other people are left to wander around the world and, and, and find, I, I, don't, I didn't see the movies. I, I couldn't bear to put myself through it. But this is probably where we get a lot of our theology. Let me give you a couple of biblical prophecy references 
and then I'm going to unpack a few other things for you and so we can at least find some ground to stand on. In Isaiah chapter 2, the Old Testament prophesy, uh, the Old Testament Isaiah prophesies that in the end times, the kingdom of God would be established in Jerusalem as chief among the nations. And so this is a passage that is taken to, and people work it to, to mean certain things. In the book of Hosea, the prophet Hosea indicates that in the end times, Israel would return to their land and seek the Lord their God. In Matthew 24, the prophecy predicts that the gospel um, the gospel of Jesus Christ will be preached to the whole world, and then the world will come to an end. Uh, in the book of 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul writes that there would be terrible times in the end times. Uh, people would have a form of godliness, but they would deny its power, and moral decay would increase. In the book of Hebrews, the he book of Hebrews, he writes about, uh, or she wrote, that the world was already in the end times. Uh, James said that the people in the end times would hoard wealth, and in the end times, uh, it would lead to their destruction. And then in 2 Peter, the apostle Peter indicates that in the end times, even religious people would dismiss the idea that Christ was going to one day return. So there are all kinds of like snippets, pieces, and we could go on and on and on throughout the scripture about finding these kinds of, kinds of pieces. So let me tell you a little bit of what you need to know. I, I think you need to. First off, there's a thing called Israel. And there's a thing called Zionism. Israel is very important in the scripture, as, as you might recall. If you've read through the scripture, you will understand that in the book of Genesis, God calls a man by the name of Abraham. He says to Abraham and Ham, he says, listen, in Genesis 12, I'm going to make you an incredible nation. I'm going to bless all people through you. God is saying to Abraham, through you, your descendants are going to be countless, and all of the world is going to be blessed through you. And it is through this man, Abraham, that the nation of Israel comes into being. And the idea is that these people, this people of Israel, would indeed reflect the beauty and the glory and the grace and the mercy and the kindness and the forgiveness of God to the whole world. And that people would look at this, this people of Israel and that they would be drawn to this divine presence, this divine God through the people of Israel. God also told the people in Israel, I'm going to give you a land. Right now it belongs to some other people. It's the land over there in Canaan, but I'm going to give that land to you. Still to this day, Jewish people stand on that promise that God said, Yahweh said, I'm going to give you that land. And so that, that is why you read so much and hear so much about the land right now in the Middle East, the little piece of land today called Israel. Over time, that land was taken away. Israel had the land. Well, so Israel didn't have the land. Someone else had the land. I think that's important. Israel took the land from them. Someone else came and took the land from Israel. Israel came back to take the land back. Someone else came back and took the land away from Israel again. And so the Jews just scattered. And that lasted forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. There's great unrest in Jerusalem. You hear about it all the time. In Jerusalem right now, I was there a, a number of years ago, and, and Jerusalem is split up. The city is split up into four quarters. You have the, the Christian quarter, the Jewish quarter, the, uh, the Muslim quarter, and I think it is the... I don't remember who the fourth quarter is. That would be the the, the Arab, uh, yeah, the Arabs. Yeah, so yeah, you have the Arabs, the the Jews, the Muslims. Well, the Arabs. What's that? Yeah, the Islam, which is the Muslim. So anyway, there's there's another one I'm missing. So anyway, it's it's broken into four quarters, and everybody's trying to keep their peace. 
Then you also have in Israel, you guys know, you have Gaza Strip and you have the West Bank, which are where the Palestinian uh, Arab Muslims live. And they're always fighting for more of the land because they believe the land belongs to them. And Israel's always pushing back because they believe the land belongs to them. It's a big fight. It's going on and on and on and on. Generally speaking, there's a group of people known as the Zionists. And Zionists are a group of people, they don't have to be Christian, but there are. There are Muslim Zionists, there are Christian Zionists, there are uh, uh, Israeli Zionists. There's, there's, Zionism is this whole thing that says the only way the world can come to the end is when the people, the Jewish people, get back to the land. All the Jewish people need to go back to the land. And not only do the Jewish people need to go back to the land, but the Jewish people need to take over the land. And they need to kick out the Palestinians and the Arabs and the Muslims, and they need to, it needs to be their land. Which is why there's so much fighting today. See, because it's tied to all this religious meaning and things. And when you buy into this, when you start thinking like this, here's what it ends up doing. It ends up breeding hate. It ends up breeding hate. It ends up breeding alliances where if I'm going to align with this person or this people or this group, then we have to align against this person or this people or this group. That's why things are so, it's such a hotbed for tension right now. And there's so much, even in United States politics, you know, like, well, if we're an, if we're an ally of Israel, then that means we have to be against the Palestinians, the Arabs, the, the Muslims which really very much goes directly against the call of the kingdom of God as the people of God who are the peacemakers, the ones who break down walls, the ones who do not keep engaging in the fighting and the divisions. So there's this going on with the place and the people of Israel. Why? Because of the temple. Now here's, here's where it gets, and I hope you do find this interesting because this stuff is very fascinating personally to me, but in Jerusalem, right there, you have where the temple was built. Now, if you remember, the temple for the people of Israel and for the Jewish people was always very important. When God delivered the people of Israel from Egypt, God's presence went with the people. And do you remember where God's presence dwelled initially? It dwelled in the cloud and it dwelled in the fire. I don't know if you recall this, but in the Old Testament scriptures, when God was leading the people through the desert out of Egypt, during the day, God's presence dwelt in a cloud, and that's how God led the people. During the day, by cloud, and during by night, he led them by fire. And God's presence went before them. When they finally settled in the desert, the people were like, God needs a place to dwell. Now, why would they think God needs a place to dwell? Because all of the gods that they were familiar with all had dwelling places. So their God needed a dwelling place. So you know what they did? They built a tent. They built a tent for their God out in the desert, Yahweh. And it was called the Tent of Meeting. And anyone who wanted to meet with God would go out to the tent. Hey, I need to meet with God. Go to the tent. And someone will go into the tent. The high priest will go into the tent and meet with God on your behalf. Because you can't go actually go into the tent. You can go to the tent. Well, eventually, they were like, wow, man, we want to do something better than a tent for God. God's better than a tent. So they built a box. It was called the Ark of the Covenant. And they were like, There's, now we've got this box, and we can put God in a box. Like, this is good. So now we can take God with us wherever we go. And when we get up and rise and we go somewhere, we'll take the box with us, and that way God's going with us, and God's in a box. And we'll put the Ten Commandments in the box, and we'll make the box real pretty, and we'll put gold angels on it and stuff. And it's like, it's going to be really cool. And if anybody touches the box, then God will strike them dead. Because, like, man, it's like crazy stuff. You should read the Bible sometime, right? It's amazing. <laughs> so now God goes from like being a cloud in the cloud to being in a tent. And I guess the box is an upgrade. But then King David, King David says, like, no, the box is not good enough. We need a, we need a, we need a house. We need a house 
for, for God's presence, which a house is ultimately what? It's just a bigger box, but we need a house. So David says, I'm going to build a house. Or I'm going to build a temple. But God is like, no, David, you're not going to build my new box. I want your son Solomon to build my new box. Uh, don't worry about it. Well, Solomon comes along and Solomon's like, I will build your new box. Solomon builds God's new box. It's the temple. It's in Jerusalem. And the temple, guys, is amazing. It really is. It's, a, it's an amazing place and space. And it's thought to be where God dwells. So now you want to pray, you go to the temple. You want to offer sacrifice, you go to the temple. You do all these things, you go to the temple. Again, you can't go to the, the inner holy of holies. There's a giant curtain that separates the space where you can go. Actually, check this out. There's lots of spaces. There's the court of the Gentiles. If you're not Jewish, you can go to the court of the Gentiles. That's how close you can get. That's as close to God as you can get. You can go to the court of the Gentiles. But if you're Jewish, you can actually get closer. You can go into the Jewish quarter, uh, the Jewish uh, grounds of the temple. Okay, so think giant temple, think outer court Gentiles. Then you, if you're Jewish, you can go in a little bit closer. And then if you're a priest, you can actually go through the curtain into the Holy of Holies on behalf of the people. So there's division, Gentile, Jew, Holy of Holy priest. That's where God lives. Solomon built that temple in around 950 B.C., and then Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came in 589 B.C., and they sacked Jerusalem. You might remember the story of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These are, these are childhood stories. If you grew up in church, you might know it. If you don't, then what happens is the Babylonian army, they come and they attack Jerusalem. They sack Jerusalem. They take the men, the women, the children. They take them into Babylonia as slaves, and they destroy the temple. They, just, they desecrate it. They destroy it. Some of the Jewish people, they leave captivity. A number of years later, around 516 A.D., they ask. They say, listen, king, can we, we want to go back home. We want to build our God's box again. Can we go and put it back together? And they get special permission to go back. So Nehemiah and Ezra and a couple of other men and women go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple so that God may dwell there. The temple is rebuilt in 516 A.D., but there's evidence that at that point God's presence never returned. It was kind of like God was like, no, I, we're done with boxes. I'm not coming back to the temple. But the people still had the temple. It was still their, their place. They still went there to meet with God. They still went there to offer their sacrifices. The temple was there. It was magnificent. It was gorgeous. It was amazingly beautiful. It was huge. It represented nation. It represented religion. It represented family. It represented everything that was good and true, and also it represented everything that was bad and messed up about religion in Israel. Jesus would have seen that temple. That's the temple we read about when we read the New Testament. In the year 70 AD, Rome, Israel's new enemy, came in, sacked Jew Jerusalem, and once again destroyed the city and destroyed the temple. In 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. The second temple was destroyed, burned to the ground by the Romans. Why does any of this matter? If you have your Bible, open up to Matthew 24, and I'll show you. We have some Bibles up here. Anybody who ever wants a Bible also, if you ever don't have a Bible at home and you want one, feel free to take one of these uh, that we have at the end of our <laughs> communion table there for you to take. Matthew chapter 24. Just going to give you a little something here to stand on. Jesus is with his disciples. And it says that Jesus just now left the temple that we were talking about. Verse 1. 
He left the temple that he was talking about. He was walking away when his disciples came up to him and brought attention, his attention to the buildings. And Jesus looks at the buildings and he says, listen, disciples, do you see these things? He says, I'm telling you this right now. Not one stone here will be left on top of another. Every single stone will be thrown down. Now, Jesus was then sitting at the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately, and they said, Well, tell us, what's going to happen, and what will the sign of your coming and the end of the age be? And Jesus said, Watch out that no one deceives you. Lots of people are going to come in my name, and you'll hear about wars. You'll hear about rumors of wars. You'll, uh, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things have to happen. But the end is still to come. Nations are going to rise up against nation. Kingdom will rise up against kingdom. There will be famines. There will be earthquakes. All this is just the beginning. And then you'll be handed over. You'll be persecuted. Some of you will be put to death. You'll be hated by all the nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith. They will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of this increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world, the testimony of all the nations, and then the end will come. And then a little bit longer, he says, now listen, the day and the hour, no one knows. The angels don't know. The Son of God does not know. Only the Father knows when the end will come. And you can read all of Matthew 24, maybe this week sometime to check it out. But I want to point out a couple things to you. First off, when Jesus says, listen, not one stone will remain on top of the other, he's looking at the temple, more than likely. Jesus has this knowing about what's going to end up taking place. He, he seems to have this sense about him that, that what has been will not last. Jesus is doing a new thing. See, Jesus said a couple of times, he says, listen, take this temple and destroy it, and three days later I will rebuild it. Now when Jesus said that, he's looking at the temple. And he says to his disciples, take the temple, destroy it. Three days later, I will rebuild it. And they look at the temple, and they're thinking, it took 40 years to build the temple. How will you? You're crazy, man. But Jesus isn't talking about that temple. Jesus is talking about a new thing that he is doing. And so he says in this passage, again, he says, listen, not one stone will remain on top of the other. This, this is going away. This is going to be left behind. <laughs> I didn't mean to do that. Um, then he says in verse 48, he says, listen, or 4 through 8, he says, listen, you're also going to hear about these other things. You're going to hear about wars. You're going to hear about rumors of wars. You're going to hear about famines. You're going to hear about earthquakes. And people take these things all the time. They're like, look, the wars, the wars, the wars, the wars. Do you realize that today in modern day society, we are no worse off today than we have been over the last 2,000 years? In many cases, we're probably doing better these days than we have in the last 2,000 years when it comes to famines and when it comes to wars and when it comes to world population being taken care of. And we're not doing well. Like, we're not doing well at all. But in most cases, we're doing better than we ever have been. Like, this is not the worst time in history to be alive. So for 2,000 years, people have been saying, well, there's a war, there's another war, there's another famine, there's another earthquake, there's a hurricane. Well, that hurricane was worse than the last one. All the hurricanes are worse now. Well, there's climate change. All these things are true. <laughs> All of this stuff is true. All of this stuff is going on. And Jesus says, and this will be the beginning of the birth pains. 
This is, this is how it gets started. He says there will be persecution. There will be death. Many will turn away. Yes, yes, yes. And then what Christians have always said is, look, this is all going to happen. The wars, the rumors of wars, people are going to turn away. People are going to be killed for their faith. But stand firm. Stand firm and do not lose the battle. And stand firm. I've always been like, yeah, let's stand firm. What do we do? Stand firm in your faith in Jesus. That's what I've always been taught. Stand firm. Do not bow down to enemy powers. Do not forsake Jesus. Stand firm in Jesus and your declaration that Jesus is Lord. That's how I've been taught. But look at what Jesus says. Because of the increase of wickedness, because of the stuff that happens, the love of many people will grow cold. But you stand firm till the end. Stand firm in what? In love. He says, look, stuff's going stuff's to get crazy. Like, you're going to hear all kinds of crazy stuff, and you're going to see stuff. But you stand firm in love. In the middle of all of it, continue to learn how to love. Stand firm in Jesus? Okay, yeah, but that's not what he's saying. Stand firm in your faith? Yeah, but that's not what he's saying. He's saying the way you do this is you continue. You do not bow down to the, the, the wars of racism. You do not bow down to the wars of sexism. You do not bow down to the war, wars of ableism and ageism. You don't bow down to, to, to considering yourself better than another person. You don't bow down to, to, to all these things that lift you up while it oppresses other people. He says, no, what you continue to do is bow down to the way of love. Stand firm in the way of love. Continue to learn how to be more merciful. Continue to learn how to be more gracious. To continue to learn how to be more forgiving, more kind, more gentle, more generous with your life and with your stuff. Bow down to the way of love. Stand firm in that. That's what I want you to do, Jesus says. And listen, no matter what happens, you'll, you'll, just, keep, you'll just keep moving. You'll just, you will be okay. Even if you're killed, you'll be okay. Even if you find yourself on the, the end of, of, of the downtrodden or the marginalized, you'll be okay. Because that's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm doing this thing. I want you to stand firm in love. Don't bow down to the other side. Somebody might end up asking, well, what about the abomination of desolation? Because that's mentioned a few times. I personally think that's just a good name for your fantasy football team. <laughs> now playing the abomination of desolation. <laughs> We're like, yes. Um, actually, most people believe that that refers to the sacking of Rome. The abomination, abomination of desolation. If you're familiar with scripture, you're familiar with that term. If you're not familiar with scripture, it's okay. But that's the sacking of Rome. Rome's going to come in and destroy the temple, destroy the place. It's all going down. Why does it matter? Here are a couple of keys, and then I'll... After Matthew 24, Jesus goes through a series of parables. He tells a parable about the owner um, of a house and a thief. He says, listen, if the owner of the house knew when the thief was coming, the owner would be ready to scare the thief off. But he doesn't know because a thief is smart and waits till the owner's not ready. He tells a story about the faithful servant. He says, listen, the faithful servant goes on a trip and he leaves uh, uh, he leaves uh, the, the, uh, the other servant, or the owner goes on a trip, he leaves the faithful servant in charge. And he says, take care of everything. And he gives this servant this amount of money, this servant this amount of money, this servant this amount of money. 
And he says, take care of everything, invest what I've given you. When he comes back, one of them invested everything and got a great reward. The other one's hid it. And he says, they weren't, they weren't good stewards while the, while the master was away. He tells a story about the ten virgins. Five virgins had enough oil to keep their lamps lit all night long. Five did not. And so when the, when the bridegroom came, the five virgins who had enough oil in their lamps were able to go with the bridegroom. And the other five, they had gone off to get more oil and they missed the bridegroom. He tells the story about the sheep and the goats. He says, listen, there's the sheep, there's the goats, there's those who took care of people, and there's those who don't. All of these parables came right after the end time. What he's saying is, listen, you don't know when it's going to happen. Nobody knows when it's going to happen. The only thing I want you to concentrate on is moving in love. Be ready. Take care of people. Be beautiful. Parable after parable after parable after parable after parable. That's all he's saying. Get in on the business of God. Get in on the kingdom of God and be about that business. And here's what happens. And this is why I would suggest to you that this is the way we go. And this is why I look at it this way. The question was, what about the third temple? There's some verbiage in there that many of the Zionists believe that a third temple will be built in Jerusalem. And when that happens then maybe Jesus will come back. Here's the deal with the temple. The presence of God dwelt in the temple, right? That's what, that's what was thought. Jesus says, destroy the temple, and in three days I'll rebuild it. He's not talking about brick and mortar. He's talking about flesh and blood. Jesus is doing a new thing where he's saying the presence of God does not dwell in a box. There is a day coming, and the day is here, where you will no longer have to go to the box or go to the house or go to the tent or go to the temple to meet with God. But God, the Spirit of the living God, is going to flood and fill human temples, human flesh and bone, flesh and blood. This is where the presence of God resides and dwells now. We don't have to go anywhere. We don't need a temple to be rebuilt. We don't need anything to happen for us to meet with and to connect with God. The presence of God is here. That's why we light the candle every week. Wherever you go, that's where God is. Wherever I go, that's where God is. Therefore, this is God's whole thing. Jesus says, don't be afraid. Don't be alarmed. Whatever happens around you, God is here. You don't have to be worried about the wars, the rumors, all that stuff. You just keep learning love. You just keep moving and ebbing and flowing with God. Just keep growing and maturing in, in the Spirit in Christ. Christ is here. So all this other talk, in my humble opinion, is all for naught. People are trying to figure it out. Jesus says, I don't even, I don't even know. I'm not sure. But I, knew, I do know that love wins the day. So keep growing in that. Uber Jeff was appalled. I mean, really, he was very upset. He thought he was going to have an amazing conversation. And I tried to be as respectful as I could. But you know what I noticed about Uber Jeff? He was scared to death. I mean, he, I'm not, I'm not making, he was like, he wanted to talk about it so bad because he was scared to death about what was going to happen next. And for me, it was just like, hey, I, I'm actually, I, I, I think I've come to a place where God is, God is so big and trustworthy and beautiful. God's big enough to figure it out. If we are committed to growing in God and growing in love, then God will take care of the rest.